Last Sunday, we looked at the proper and improper uses of Christian liberty or gospel freedom. In uh, our previous section, Galatians 5, 13 through 15, uh, gospel freedom is properly used when we use it to serve God and serve others in love, when we utilize it for our own enjoyment and pleasure without sinning. Um, so that's, that's the intended and proper use of it. Uh, it is improperly used when it is used for opportunities of the flesh, in particular uh, fighting and arguing and, and bickering and, and these sorts of things, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, any abuse of any of the good things that God has given us for our enjoyment and His glory, we can take those things and misuse them, and that's a, an improper use of, of our gospel freedom. The Judaizers, the false teachers that have been hassling the Galatians, they were charging Paul with preaching a false gospel that leads to lawlessness or just loose living by Christians. And we, we call that antinomianism. No law, no rules, no morality, just do what you want and claim grace. And in the next section, the apostle continues to refute these Judaizers by showing how true believers have the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit helps them kill sin and how the Holy Spirit helps them live fruitful, holy lives. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. If you could please take your Bibles and turn on over to Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 25 is our text. Cameron read it for us. And I have entitled this message or sermon, The Work of the Holy Spirit, and this will be the first part because Paul continues on with the same theme for the next 11 verses or so after uh, verse 25, so we'll have a second part to that uh, this morning for uh, teaching reasons and trying to simplify the way that we can frame and look at the text. I'm going to give you some C's, four C's. And I'd like to pray before we get to work. Lord, uh, we ask that you be with those who, who couldn't make it today. I know my wife is traveling, and I know the Doyles are out sick, and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And so we ask that you be with them. And uh, we're here, so we pray that uh, as we worship you through the proclamation of your word, we'll do that through paying attention through maybe taking some notes, but mostly by hearing the Word and listening and paying attention to it and then trusting in you and then living it out, which will come after today, so or at least after this message. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you're glorified here as you build us up and uh, teach us about the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand that those who are truly saved have the Holy Spirit and will live a certain way. They'll live according to their new nature uh, as new creations with a new love for you, a new hatred for sin, a new love for holiness and righteousness, and uh, a new love for, for the very things of God, the things that are good. And so just teach us this morning. We humbly sit at your feet and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we can begin with the, the first C. This is where 
Paul left off last week where we left off, and it's the command, the command, we see it in verse 16. This is what Paul says next. And remember, he's still kind of in the theme of gospel freedom. He hasn't abandoned that theme yet and moved on to another theme. So this is kind of all under that umbrella of, of how Christians have been set free and how they are to use that freedom. That's kind of the, the overarching narrative of this section. So we see the command, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Stop there. So the Judaizers, the false teachers, were telling the Galatians to walk by the law. This is how you're going to be justified and, and seen right by God and qualified for the kingdom and these sorts of things, provided that you walk by the law. If you walk by the law, then you're good to go. And if you walk by the law, you will, because the law tells you to do this, you will avoid gratifying the desires of the flesh. So that's the Judaizers' position and their argument. And what Paul is doing here is he is flat out contradicting them. He's flat out contradicting them. He's saying that, um, no, you're not to walk by the law. That's not going to help you with, with you know, avoiding the desires of the flesh. That's merely going to expose those things and multiply your shame and guilt. And so he's contradicting their theology here. He is commanding that they don't walk by the law as a means to deal with the desires of their flesh. He is commanding that they walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because that is how the believer avoids gratifying the desires of the flesh. Again, the law, it just reveals the desires of the flesh and the carrying out of the desires of the flesh and, and the sins of the flesh. It, it condemns the desires of the flesh. It commands people to avoid the desires of the flesh. It does all of this, and rightly so. But it cannot empower anyone to do what it says to be done. Isn't that crazy? It's like God tells people to do something knowing that they can't and that they'll fail. Why? To drive them to the cross. But if a person thinks that, well, if I just focus my attention, especially a Christian, on the law, that's going to help me learn what the desires of the flesh are and to avoid them, when in fact the law cannot do that. It can only expose these things. It cannot empower obedience. It cannot empower avoidance can't do any of that. Therefore, the law leaves people in a dreadful, hopeless state. It shows what you're not to do while knowing that you do it and then doesn't provide a solution in and of itself. It leaves a person in the state of total condemnation. And yet those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit who actually empowers believers to mortify their flesh, to die to their flesh, to kill off the sins of the flesh, and to obey God. So, so pursuing the law as a means to avoid the, the desires and, and sins of the flesh, that's the wrong pursuit. It can only expose, conjure up guilt, 
feelings of absolute worthlessness, but those who walk in the Spirit, they have the ability to do the very thing the law says you can't. It says do, but you can't. Believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, I think most of us understand this, who proceeds from the Father. John 15, 26, you remember what Jesus said, uh, I will give you a helper, I will give you a comforter, and I will ask the Father to send him to you. I will send him to you through the Father. So believers are indwelled, possessed by the Holy Spirit, and that's because the Father has sent the Holy Spirit to them. And the Holy Spirit has a great many tasks in the life of a believer, inside of the believer, right? He assists believers in prayer. Remember when we don't have the words, we're in a situation, and we, um, we sort of just kind of grumble out our prayers, and the, and the Spirit discerns those to the Father or translates those to the Father or gives the Father the meaning that is in our hearts as we pray. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 20. The Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, Romans 8, 27. He also comforts and convicts and guides and instructs believers, John 16, 7 through 13. Do you know what the Spirit does? For the believer and in the believer, he does everything that Jesus did for and uh, with the disciples. Jesus told the disciples, I'm leaving and it's better that I go, but I'm going to send you a helper. And what is that helper going to do? He's going to do the ministry, my ministry, in your lives and in your hearts. These are the things that the Holy Spirit does as he possesses or indwells us. And we could break down this verse a little bit. The word walk... It's sometimes used in Scripture as a metaphor for just daily living, just practical daily living, right? He says, walk by the Spirit. And that's the meaning here. He's, he's telling them to walk by the Spirit. What he's essentially saying is live a certain way according to the Spirit. Believers are on a journey. They're in a race. These are metaphors or examples that are used in scripture illustrations. We're on a journey, we're, we're in a race, we're sojourners. Um, I like to think of us as John Bunyan did as in Pilgrim's Progress, which every Christian should read. Uh, we're, we're like the main protagonist, really the main protagonist is the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity in it, but there's a human main protagonist and that's a guy by the name of Christian. And, and Bunyan uses names that are, I mean, he calls him Christian. Why? Because he's a Christian. He doesn't give him a fancy name. Just, this is Christian. And, and this character, Christian, you know, he, he walks this journey. It's, he's a pilgrim of the Lord, and he walks in progress toward the celestial city, although he, he encounters many travails and trials and difficulties and temptations, and some of which he falls into. It just illustrates what the Christian life is like, what our journey is like. This is why you should read it. Get a modern-day version of it because you'll have a hard time reading Bunyan if you don't. And this is, this is what it's like for us. And in many ways, in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian had to learn to walk by the Spirit rather than in his flesh because he had spent most of his life walking by his flesh as 
a great many of us have, if not all of us. I don't know when you got saved. Maybe you were saved as a child and you really can't recollect anything prior to that. But for me, I got saved at about 32 years old and I spent a lot of time walking in the flesh. And by the way, newsflash, I still do it from time to time. Ain't happy. But walking by the Spirit like Christian, the protagonist, toward the celestial city. And it has to do with allowing the Holy Spirit to exert his influence over us and over our decisions from a moment-to-moment, by-a-moment-by-moment situation here. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. It is uh, coram deo which means living in the presence of God, and I would say with an emphasis on God the Holy Spirit indwelling and guiding us and us submitting to him. Paul says, man, if, you, if, you, you know, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit, and, and, and you, you need to walk by the Spirit. You will actually, according to your new nature with the Spirit in you, you will walk by the Spirit. It'll be a battle, but you'll walk by the Spirit. And when you do that, you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. You're following the will of God instead of the will of your flesh. This is what he's saying. Why is this? It's because the Spirit produces an inner righteousness, not fleshly desires. The flesh is responsible for those fleshly desires, not the Spirit that is in us. It's our flesh that wants those things. It's the old man, as Paul called it, the old nature, the old self. You're walking by the Spirit. You're doing things in accordance with the Spirit. You're following His lead. You're too busy following the Spirit to be following the desires of your flesh. That's what Paul is saying. MacArthur has a good little statement here. To live solely by a set of laws is to live by the flesh in self-righteousness and hypocrisy and to suppress the Spirit, who alone is able inwardly to produce works of true righteousness. Very interesting that that he literally calls, if you're trying to obey the law, and that's your focus, and that's how you're trying to suppress the desires of your flesh and deal with those things, you're actually walking in the flesh because you're trying to follow a set of fleshly laws, laws that, that are aimed at your flesh. There's just such a, a great many Christians. I, I guess they're Christians, but their focus is the law. It's not the Spirit. And then there's some where all they focus on and talk about is the Spirit. they got no room in their theology for Jesus or the Father. The true believer actually wants to be controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit, not by his or her flesh. Amen? If you're a true believer, your real desire, your heart of heart's desire is, is to... Follow the Spirit's lead and, and please God and walk by the Spirit. That's what you want. That's a default mode for you that wasn't there before. And I can tell you 100%. That, that is absolutely 100% accurate. That is exactly me. Before I was saved, I just walked by the flesh. And then when God saved me, I wanted to walk by the Spirit. And I'm not saying I do it perfect. But there's a new desire there. I want to please God with my life. Do you? If you do, then that is a sign that the Spirit is in you because that's what he cultivates in the life of a true believer. When he possesses someone, when he indwells someone, he brings about a new nature with new desires 
And the heart cry of the Christian is to be controlled and guided and led and directed by the Holy Spirit in all things. And, and this true Christian will seek to use their gospel freedom to walk by the Spirit so they can mortify, kill the flesh off, the desires of the flesh, so that they can produce righteousness in good fruit. That's the meaning of verse 16. It's a loaded verse. Now, Paul is not naive. <laughs> He's being guided by the Spirit here. He himself is, is walking by the Spirit as he writes this letter, as he writes this epistle. He was not naive. He was not ignorant. He was very, very aware of how difficult it can be for believers to actually walk by the Spirit. And he acknowledges this in the next section. We can move to the second C. Number two, the conflict. The conflict, verses 17 and 18 he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So walking by the spirit for us Christians is not an, an easy task because our fleshly desires are against the spirit. And the spirit is against our fleshly desires. How many of you in here have ever served in the military? How many of you have ever been in combat? None of you. All of you have been in combat. You're in combat. We tend to think of spiritual warfare as something that happens on the outside. Like, you know what? I'm going to take my sword and I'm going to slay this guy over here who has a different theology. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare begins in you. You are a soldier and you are in a conflict and you are to make combat as a partner with the Holy Spirit. What are we combating? The flesh. That's what we're combating. We are in a conflict against our uh, fleshly desires, but really the spirit is at conflict with our fleshly desires as he resides in us. There is conflict between the Holy Spirit and fleshly desires, the old man, the old nature. They're literally battling each other within us. And this is spiritual warfare by definition. It's not some spiritual combat that we're always making on the outside of us. It's happening right within us. I've got Vietnam in me. And sometimes I feel like the communists are winning. That would be the flesh. That's kind of mean toward the communists. But they're communists. You've got this inner warfare, this inner combat, this inner conflict. And here, here's when the flesh prevails. It prevails when we give in to temptation and seek to satisfy the desires of our flesh. That's when the flesh wins. And yet the Spirit prevails, listen, when we stand firm and mortify our flesh, when we hold the line and say no to sin, that's when the Spirit is prevailing. That's when the Spirit is, is gaining beachhead. So you've got this conflict, you've got this 
internal warfare and, and we're, we're seemingly losing the battle as we cave and give in to temptation and yet, and, and yet then we're winning or the spirit is winning when we don't. It's the way it works. I really like the way that Paul talked about how, you know, this, the flesh here, it can keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That right there is one of the biggest signs of an actual real believer. The flesh battles against us, the, the true believer, to keep the true believer from doing the things that he or she wants to do. What are the things that he or she wants to do? Follow the Spirit, obey God, bring God glory. That's a sign of true belief or real conversion that, that there are new things that you want to do. Like, please God with your life. Like, surrender and submit to the Holy Spirit. Like, bring Him praise and bring Him glory. Like, fight and make combat and conflict and war against your flesh. And if you don't have any of this going on in you, there's something. It, you're dead in your sins. You're still dead. The flesh can keep us from doing the things we want to do. It's not talking about how the spirit keeps us from doing sinful things we want to do. It's talking about how the flesh keeps us from doing things that parallel perfectly, dovetail with our new nature. As a new creation, I have new desires, and the flesh tries to get in the way of that. And quite frankly, it does a pretty good job at times, doesn't it? It does. As Born again, new creations, John 3, 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we possess new desires. We desire God, we desire holiness, we desire righteousness, we desire truth, we desire to spread and share the gospel, we desire the church. We don't stay home forever because of COVID. We want to get back in where the people of God are gathering. We don't want to keep forsaking the assembly, Hebrews 10, 25. These are new desires that we have, desires that we have as true believers. We desire to love and serve one another, and yet our flesh, it can get in the way of these new godly desires, can't it? It tries to, to pull us back to our old sinful desires, and quite frankly, it's successful at times. And Paul expressed his frustration over this insane phenomenon in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 19. He wrote, for I do, listen to this, for I do not understand my own actions. You ever said that to yourself? I'm a child of God. Why do I keep acting like a child of a heathen? Why am I heathen? He says, I don't even understand my own actions. And he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want to do, I keep doing it. He's literally talking about this conflict. I've got the spirit in me warring against my flesh, and the flesh wants me to do things that I don't want to do, and the spirit wants me to do things that, that I do want to do, but there's conflict, and, and sometimes I fail, and I, and, I, and I give in and cave to the flesh, and I go about it, and, and I satisfy the desires of the flesh. I do the very thing I hate now. That's what he's saying. I think that what Paul said here, we can all, it, it resonates with every true believer. And then down in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he cries out, wretched man that I am, exclamation point, who will deliver me from this pathetic body of death? 
And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? He wants to be delivered from this conflict. He wants to only obey the Holy Spirit. He wants it so badly. And he cries out, I'm so wretched. I can't do this. I can't do it at times. Who's going to deliver me from this? Oh, that's right. I have Jesus Christ the Lord who will deliver me from this. Every true believer has felt the way that Paul did here. You could be a believer for 10 minutes and you're already starting to feel that. We get frustrated when our flesh prevails. We get frustrated when it prevents us from living out the desires of our regenerated hearts. Sometimes we even get exasperated when we keep going back to the things that we now hate, the desires of the flesh. Have you ever been like Paul here where you're exasperated with yourself? Why, Lord, do I keep saying these things? Why do I keep using my tongue in such a way? I, I can't get a hold of this thing. James says, amen. Nobody can tame your two-ounce beast. The Holy Spirit can if you walk by him. Have you ever cried out for deliverance as Paul is here? You ever said things like, Jesus, save me from these wicked thoughts. Save me from this poisonous tongue. Rescue me from these lustful passions. Renew my desire for purity and holiness. Give me the will and strength to do what is right. Cause me to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Have you ever prayed anything like that? If you have, that is a good sign. There's a conflict going on in us. Verse 18, Paul tests the Galatians. If the inner conflict between flesh and spirit exists and, and, and you want the spirit to prevail, and, 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 and speaking of the Galatians, that they desire to be led by the spirit, it, it confirms that they have been converted and are no longer under the law, that they've been delivered from condemnation. It's a test. Ask yourself the same thing. Test yourself. Do you want the Spirit to prevail? Do you desire to be led by the Spirit? Is the conflict there? If there's no conflict, there's no conversion. It's that simple. If the inner conflict between flesh and spirit does not exist and you don't want the spirit to prevail and you don't desire to be led by the spirit, it just confirms that there's no conversion. And it confirms that you are still under the law, still in your sin, still under condemnation, still headed toward hell. But if the opposite is true, it, 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 it shows that the spirit is in you and you've been converted. And the law, the law doesn't apply to you in that regard, and, and there is no hell or condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the next section, Paul continues to test the Galatians to see if they are in the flesh or if they have the Holy Spirit. I think he knows the answer to the test, but, you know, it's good for him to test the Galatians. It's good for us to test ourselves. The next C, we call this the contrast. This is a wonderful section. It's where we get the fruits of the Spirit from, which are usually cited and quoted 
and read aloud without any context behind them. And they're misapplied at times. But they, they are literally written here within the context of gospel freedom, within the context of the prevailing work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. This is the contrast, verses 19 to 23. Now the works, here's, here's the first thing. Now the works of the flesh, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. This is crazy. This, this is what these people were dealing with back then, I guess, huh? Heavy-duty stuff. These are the works of the flesh, he says. And things like that. And then listen to this. I warn you as I warned you before. He must be talking about when he first ministered the gospel to them almost two years earlier. As I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things, there is no law. So he's contrasting the person who is of the flesh with the person who has the Spirit or who is possessed by the Spirit. He begins by pointing out what the person who is in the flesh does, and they do the works of the flesh. If they're of the flesh, they're going to be fleshly. They're going to do the things that the flesh does. And he, he gives us a list here in verses 19 to 21a. These things are going to be evident in the life of a person who is of the flesh or in the flesh. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because I don't want to filthy this place up. Impurity, the first one he mentions here. It means to be morally unclean, especially in relationship to sexual sin. It's interesting that most of these here have a sexual connotation. It's almost like Paul understood what America would be years later. Obsessed and addicted to sex. Impurity, morally unclean, especially in relationship to sexual sin. Sensuality, this is a sexual thing too. Throwing off sexual restraint, lewd character, lewd behavior. That's what it means. And when I give you the meaning, I'm giving it to you from the Greek. I just, I'm not giving you the Greek words because some of them I couldn't pronounce if I was paid to, and I am paid to pronounce them, and I can't do it. They're just crazy. The next one is idolatry. This has to do with worshiping people, places, and things instead of the one true God. And I think in this context, it has to do with worshiping sex. That's America. Sorcery. Now, that seems like we're not doing that here. We like Harry Potter, but we don't take it serious, right? Well, do you know what it denotes? Drug use. There's more drugs being done in America than in any other country. It denotes the use of magic to cast spells upon people, which doesn't sound very relevant to us, but then it denotes drug use. So we'll go with that. Enmity. This is to harbor hatred and hostility in the heart and to make enemies out of others. Yeah. Strife. This is conflict resulting from rivalry and discord. Jealousy, 
strong feelings of resentment and envy. You know, basically hating others because of what they have, being jealous over them. Maybe some guy's got a really nice wife, and you're like, well, gosh, I wish I had a wife like that. I wish I had a car like that. I wish I had a house like that. I wish I had a church like that. That kind of nonsense. Jealousy. Fits of anger. This, is, this basically means to be hot-headed. Guilty at times. Blowing your stack, right? Anyone in here blowing their stack? Anyone do it on the way to church this morning? Because of the guy that clearly doesn't know how to drive in front of you? Fits of anger. It's intense anger with the implication of passionate outbursts. Passionate outbursts. Twitter wars. Ah. Rivalries. Selfish ambition, resentfulness, dissensions. Listen to this one. This is is insanely apropos. Division into opposing groups, generally two. Is that not America? Is that not us at times? Dissensions, right? Division into opposing groups, then divisions. It sounds like the same thing. It is kind of. It happens. It has to do with forming factions and parties and sects. S C S E C T S. I don't know if I spelled that right, but it's not the other one. Forming these little groups and these. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollo. See how this happens in churches. But it happens in a zillion other ways. Faction forming. Uh, we have that today going on in, in a good old U.S. Envy, it's not the same thing as jealousy. It's similar, but not the same. It has to do with holding a grudge against someone when they enjoy certain advantages. Getting upset at people that have better things than you or enjoy certain advantages that you don't enjoy. It's like a jealousy. Drunkenness, do we really need an explanation for that one? to become drunk on alcoholic beverages. That's what it means in Greek. Orgies. Orgies. It's not what you think. And I'm not exactly sure why English translators use this particular word for it. There is a sexual connotation here, but it's it's not uh, what we think of. And don't think long on that. Drinking parties involving unrestrained indulgence in alcoholic beverages with immoral behavior, carousing, revelry, revelry, orgies. Animal House. Remember that 70s movie? If you haven't seen it, don't. Right? That's what it is. That's what it means. It has to do with just drinking parties where everyone gets hammered and ends up doing a bunch of stupid, crazy, sinful stuff. Revelry. I think it's interesting. That's the whole list. I think it's interesting how Paul puts sexual immorality at the beginning and orgies at the end. The bookends are sexual sin. You notice that? You think that's uh, happenstance? Or do you think that's deliberate? The person who is in the flesh does these works of the flesh. 
These are the things they do. Maybe not all at the same time, but these are the things they do. And you've got to notice that warning in 21b. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea here is habitual practice. My life, I live in the flesh, and my life is marked by these sorts of fleshly things. And I can tell you, without a doubt, prior to me being saved, my life was marked by some of these things. Undoubtedly. Enmity? Who, who hasn't dealt with enmity? Who hasn't, who here in this room has never had an ounce of idolatry? You've never worshipped anything other than the Lord. We wrestle with that now. That's a fleshly work. Well, I don't worship carved images and stuff like the old, you know, the old ancient Israelites did. No, you, you may not, but you may worship your job. You may worship your spouse. If you say things like, I couldn't live without her, you have a problem. I'm not saying that any of us want to live without our spouses. I certainly don't want to. But if my life is, 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 is so caught up in Rachel that I can't imagine a life without her, the only person that I shouldn't be able to live without him is, without, is Christ. Amen? He's it. I can't imagine my life. I can't imagine what my life would be like without Christ. I'll just go back 20 years before I was saved, and that's what it was like. And that was not a life. It was these works of the flesh, pretty much all of them. And it was no life. I thought it was a life. I like what Luther wrote here. He says, this is a hard saying. When he talks about how people that do this stuff, they're not going to inherit the kingdom. He says, this is a hard saying, but very necessary for those false Christians and hypocrites who speak much about the gospel, much about faith, much about the spirit, yet they live after the flesh. The antinomian. That's really who Paul has in his crosshairs here. Do you know who he has in his crosshairs? The Judaizers. Making it worse on the Judaizers, they were attempting to obey the law, which condemns them. Now, here's the contrast, right? So that's the flesh. Now, here's the contrast. The contrast is the person who has the Holy Spirit. They're going to have the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul lists them in verses 22 to 23a. These things are going to be evident in their life. Love. It's not the perverted love of the world. It's not, it's not that. Love here, it's the supreme virtue of, of Christian living. It is the prominent virtue in Christian theology and ethics. He is speaking of agape, or some of you call it agape. That's the love that he's speaking of here. That's... That's the Greek word for love in this text. Agape, it is the form of love that most reflects personal choice, referring not simply to pleasant emotions or good feelings, but to willing, self-giving sacrifice. You know, the love of God. We see it, a great expression of the same word here in Romans 5, 8. God shows his Agape for us in that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? Died for us. That's the highest expression 
of agape love the world has ever seen or the Christian will ever know. And we must understand that for believers, love is, is not an option. It is a command. Why do we have to be commanded to love? Because we still have this old flesh and old nature that creeps in and wants us to pervert love or not love and to withhold love. It's commanded to us. We are commanded to walk in agape, in love. Paul declares, right, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, Ephesians 5.2. And yet, this command to love that's given to believers, it cannot be done. It can't be done by anyone in particular. It has to be fulfilled by the Holy Spirit in us. In other words, we can't love the way God loves without the work of the Spirit, without the presence of the Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who bears the fruit of God's love in us. If we have the Spirit, we have agape in us. We can do it. There's no excuses. But we have to be commanded to do it because our default is not to love that way. So, a fruit of the Spirit is agape, it is love. If you have the Spirit, you have this love. You love this love because you're experiencing it straight from the Father. You love this love and you want to share this love with others. And because of the flesh, sometimes you want to withhold it. God loves us and loved us in spite of who we are. We tend to put conditions on our love, don't we? We want to love those who love us and treat us well. That's our flesh. But if we walk by the Spirit, we'll love Him regardless. That's the challenge. Second one is joy. As defined, a feeling of happiness that is based on spiritual realities, a deep-down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows all is well between himself or herself and the Lord Jesus. It does not come from favorable human circumstances, right? But is sometimes greatest when those circumstances are the most painful and severe. Just think of the book of Philippians for a moment. It'd probably be worth our time to study it in the future. Any book in the Bible really would be worth our time. But Philippians is literally seen by people as the happiest book in the entire Bible. Can you believe that? Philippians. And Paul wrote it while he was in prison. You understand what I'm telling you? A joyful apostle full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, walking in, in the Spirit, had a joy that was explosive and came out in, in, in the authorship and writings through the leading of the Holy Spirit, the happiest book in the Bible, as Disneyland's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. I think it's the most expensive place on earth. Joy. Do you have this joy? The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of God's joy in us. It is an unshakable joy. If we have the Spirit, this joy will be evident in our lives. Peace. This is the tranquility of the mind that comes from knowing that we are in a right relationship with God. 
It transcends our understanding, right? Philippians 4, 6, the happiest book. Especially during times of loss and suffering, right? You, you, you recall going through some kind of tragedy and, and yet just having this peace about you? That's the peace of God in you, brought by the Spirit, cultivated and birthed through the Spirit in you. You've got this peace, the peace that transcends our understanding. What does that mean? It, it goes beyond our level of understanding at times because it, it remains there in the midst of the worst scenarios. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of God's peace in us. If we have the Spirit, this peace will be evident in our lives. Patience. This is the tolerance that endures injuries inflicted by others, the calm willingness to accept situations that are irritating and painful. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of patience in us. If we have the Spirit, this patience will be evident in our lives. This might be one of the ones that's most lacking in me. And, and everything in this culture is telling us to get it now. Does this culture of ours that we live in, does this society, do the people, does, does the, do the television ads and the newspaper ads and, and the ads on Instagram and everything, are they telling us to be patient or to seize the moment and get everything that we're entitled to now? We live in a culture that doesn't understand patience at all. And then our flesh, it doesn't understand patience at all. It wants everything now. It wants immediate gratification. It doesn't want us to to be patient and to, to wait on the Lord to, to, to bring his choice of spouse into our life or, or to wait to be sexual with a spouse instead of with a girlfriend. We don't even have the patience for those things. And yet if we have the spirit, this patience will be in us. It'll be evident. We can learn to wait. Waiting has to do with trusting. We don't wait because we don't trust. We don't wait because we don't trust. You understand what I'm saying to you? You don't wait because you don't trust. I don't wait because I don't trust. We are supposed to walk by faith, which is simple trust in the Lord, and yet we want to walk in the flesh and by the flesh because we don't have patience. We can't wait. And waiting is, is, patience is probably one of the ultimate virtues next to love. It's right there. Abraham couldn't wait any longer and then took someone that wasn't supposed to be his wife and had a child with her. And now the Israelites have been at war with those people that came through that child since that moment. It pays off to have patience and to wait. But you're not going to get anywhere without the Holy Spirit. You're not getting anywhere without the Spirit. The Spirit cultivates this sense of strong patience and trust in the Lord. And you just say, I'm going to wait on you, Lord, but, but my waiting is active. I'm going to be actively pursuing the things that you've called me to pursue. Because we think that the waiting is this on the Lord. No, our waiting is active. 
We're growing in, 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 in the truth and we're spending time in prayer and we're in the fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We're not just sitting around waiting for things to happen. Sometimes the way God brings it into our life is for us to pursue it, but to do it in wisdom. Kindness, this is tender concern for others. Tender concern for others. I, I think I have, I have trouble... I don't know. Am I unkind? Not usually, but I, I'm not always the most tender person. It has nothing to do here. The kindness has nothing to do with weakness or a lack of conviction or anything like that. It's just a genuine desire of us believers to treat others gently, just as the Lord treats us. I think we would all admit as Christians, we, we love the way that the Lord Jesus treats us. Do we understand that that's how he intends and calls through the Spirit for us to be kind to treat others? We want to be treated like that, but we don't want to treat others like that, especially those who harm us. I think Jesus is really the model for all of these fruits, undoubtedly, but especially when it comes to kindness. I mean, he had little kids coming to him and little children coming to him and climbing all over him like a jungle gym. And the disciples saw this and said, man, get these parents. What are you doing? It was almost like the Santa thing at the mall. And these kids are climbing all over him and, and coming to him and wanting to be blessed by him. And the disciples intervened and said, get these kids out of here. What's going on here? Have a little respect. And Jesus said, you know what? No, you let the little children come to me and you better not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 19, 13 to 14. That's kindness. Is it not the, the kindness of God that leads people to repentance? You think that you can beat people up with the gospel? Have fun with that. Preach the gospel in truth and in love and in kindness. Spurgeon would say, be winsome. You're not trying to win an argument. You want to see the Holy Spirit win souls. Kindness. If we have the Spirit, kindness will be evident in our lives. God's kindness will be evident in our lives. Maybe that's one of the things that you really started to notice. You were a hard man or a hard woman, a hard person before you were saved. And after that... God softened you, and he's been softening you, and he's, he's transforming you and make you, making you a, a much more kind and gentle person. Wow. Goodness. This is moral and spiritual excellence that is known by its sweetness and active kindness. So it's kind of related to kindness. Goodness does not dwell in our flesh, right? Right? Apostle Paul said, for we know that nothing good dwells in us. That is, in our flesh. Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 18a. There's, no, there's nothing good about our flesh. There's nothing good that resides in our flesh. It's a monster. It's a dragon that needs to be slayed. And yet the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of God's goodness in us. If we have the Spirit Goodness will be evident in our lives. We will want to be moral. We will pursue morality. 
faithfulness, pertains to loyalty and trustworthiness. Jesus was and is ultimately faithful, ultimately faithful. He was faithful to his father's plan of redemption, and because of this, right, he came down and did his work. Because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians, again, the happy book, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. We are called and empowered through the Holy Spirit to be faithful. But we need to remember that at the end of the day, there is, there is one who is true and faithful. And that is Christ himself. But that doesn't mean that oh, well, we can be fatalistic. I don't have to be faithful. You better be faithful. It's part of your new nature. You should want to be faithful. You should want to be faithful to your spouse. You should want, firstly, to be faithful to your Lord. You should want to be faithful to your Christian brothers and sisters. You should want to be faithful to your church. You should want to be faithful in your giving. Well, I just got to have these things in the flesh. Jesus had been faithful to us. He has been faithful to us in, in, in a thousand ways, in a million ways. And he will keep being faithful to us. Why? Because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Just because he's the ultimately faithful one and always true and always faithful and, and never breaks his promises to us, that doesn't mean that you know, we can be fatalistic and say, well, it's just all in him and I don't have to be faithful. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, he will produce God's faithfulness in you. If you have the Spirit, it's going to be evident in your life. It's going to be there. Gentleness a humble and meek attitude that is patiently submissive in every offense while being free of any desire for revenge and retribution. Whew. Wow. Gentleness. How many of us feel like at times we want a little retribution and revenge? Huh? Oh, that's just pure flesh. That's your flesh crying out for these things, right? My flesh is loud when it comes to that. Oh, when people wrong me, I'm like, you go get them, Lord. You get them. Tear them up. He never does it. It's weird. <laughs> He's calling me to learn through all of these afflictions to be Gentle, to be meek. Meek is power under control. That's what it means to be meek, power under control. Who's the best example of that ever? Jesus. Revenge and retribution, the desires for those things, that is a cancer that consumes it eats us alive. But if we have the Spirit, gentleness will be evident in our lives. It will be. Self-control. This has to do with restraining passions and appetites. Fleshly 
restraint and fleshly appetites. And I think we would all agree that the flesh has no self-control. Amen? It, it has none. It is a tiger out of its cage. Now, the, the conscience works to subdue the flesh, but as the conscience becomes seared more and more by sin over time, it loses its ability to regulate or to call the flesh back or to subdue or to suppress the flesh. In fact, the conscience is kind of a fleshly mechanism in a sense. It's at least part of who we are. People with seared consciences and unrestrained passions, they, they go from lover to lover, they go from drink to drink, drug to drug, and so on and so forth. They have no self-control. The only self-control they have is, is usually done by law enforcement, and that's only when they get caught. They do whatever their flesh leads them to do. That was me! Was that you before you were saved? Have you ever had someone say, control yourself? Hmm? There it is, out of control, spiraling down to hell. Now, we must understand that self-control is not a communicable attribute like some of these other fruits. You know, God has communicable attributes that come to us, his love and gentleness. And these, actually, he doesn't even have gentleness as a communicable attribute. There's no reason for God to be gentle. He's eternally gentle. But some of these things are communicable attributes, things that, that God gives his people through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But self-control is not one of them because God has no reason to control himself. He's perfectly holy, perfect in every way. He's never lost control. He didn't lose control at the fall. Understand me. It's all part of his divine will and plan. He has no need of this, and yet it is a gift that he gives to those who need it. You and me, his people, the elect, the sheep, the church, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of self-control in us. If we have the Spirit, self-control will be evident in our life. In fact, that might be one of the most defining things about me. No control at all converted. A whole lot of control came with the Holy Spirit. Man, I started to learn to control my tongue, my fleshly appetites. I had no concept of those things prior to being saved. The person who has the Holy Spirit will have the fruit of the Spirit. These things, they will be evident in their life. And yet we must remember what Paul said before we got into this section, before we got into the contrast section. The flesh will war against the Spirit. Why? Because, you know, the flesh hates the Spirit, and the Spirit will war against the flesh. Why? Because the Spirit hates the flesh. Conflict, conflict. These fruits will be there, but there will be conflict over them and over their proper use. Warfare, it's there. 
verse 23b, Paul tells the Galatians that there is no law against the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? He says there's no law against such things. Why is that? Because they are the virtues that God wants us to have. The believer who walks in the Spirit and manifests his fruit does not need a system of law to produce the right attitudes and behavior. They rise up from within him or her. I don't need the law to tell me what to do. The Spirit is in me and he guides me to do what I'm to do. You understand the difference? Now let's move to that last C. The conquest. Verses 24 and 25. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. True believers, that's what he's speaking of here, right? Because they are those who belong to Christ. What do they do? They crucify their flesh with its passions and desires. This is another mark of a true believer. They're in the business of crucifying their flesh, mortifying their flesh, killing sin. They crucify their flesh and, uh, when, when uh, and, and, and here's a great point. How do you crucify the flesh? We crucify our flesh when we flee from temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We crucify our flesh when, when we make no provision for the flesh. We, we, don't, we don't give it opportunities and ways to, to, to satisfy itself. Romans 13, 14. We, we do this when, when we remove things that cause us to sin. Matthew 5, 29. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We're going to have a bunch of one-eyed people in here next Sunday. We also crucify the flesh when we put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, Colossians 3, 5a. It's a practical way in which we do these things. When the believer crucifies his flesh like this, he is living by the Spirit because these are the things that the Spirit does in us. True believers will also keep in step with the Spirit well, how, does, how is this done? They keep in step with the Spirit by surrendering to the Spirit's conquest to subjugate every aspect of their lives to the will of God. Perpetual submission to the Spirit's call on us and leading in us and, 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 and even allowing Him to mortify the flesh or to at least work on that. It's a it's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment. Keeping in step is you're, you're keeping in step with the Spirit by allowing Him to subjugate the entirety of who you are, every area of your life, to the will of God. And there's another way that we do this. We keep in step with the Spirit by crucifying the flesh and the passions and the desires and these things by just simply killing sin. Killing sin. Do you kill sin? Or do you live it out with a smile? Do you mourn your sin? Do you grieve it? (sighs) Wrapping up, true believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is inner conflict between their flesh and the Spirit. They also have the fruits of the Spirit, or at least the fruit of the Spirit. It's not plural there in the text. It says fruit, and that's love, joy, and peace, and 
patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. True believers have these things. They have the Spirit and they have the fruit. They live by the Spirit. They keep in step with the Spirit by surrendering to the Spirit's conquest over their lives and by crucifying their flesh with its passions and desires. You know, the Galatians were true believers. Paul was essentially singing to the choir and equipping them because they were being treated by hostile adversaries that were trying to get them to do the opposite or at least trying to get them to submit to the law, which wasn't going to be able to help them at all. And yet false believers, and I call them false believers because churches have them. Remember, there are those who say, Lord to Lord to the Lord, and he says, away from me, you workers of iniquity. These are poser Christians. These are false Christians. They're they're not people on the outside. They're those who rub elbows with us. This is why we must test ourselves over and over, make sure that we are in the faith. False believers, they self-righteously pursue the law. Life is about the law. They are not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. There is no inner conflict within them because they don't have the Spirit. The Spirit isn't warring against their flesh or vice versa because they don't have the Spirit. They're just trying to keep bending their lives around the law and around God's commandments. It's all they do. And there's no fruit there. None. You know what they have? They have the works of the flesh. They have sexual immorality. They have impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and and enmity or enmity and strife and jealousy and and fits of anger and rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, those drinking parties that lead to all sorts of carousing and, and revelry and these sorts of things. These are the things that are marking their lives. These are the poisonous bad fruit in their lives. These are the works of the flesh. They do not live by the Spirit nor keep in step with the Spirit because they do not have the Spirit. They do not crucify their flesh with its passions and desires. They gratify the desires and passions of their flesh, and then they try to hide it behind a veil of piety. Empty, false religion. Who is Paul writing about here? Who is he speaking about here in this text? The Galatians as true believers, the Judaizers as those people and men of the flesh. That's what he's doing here. He literally tore the Judaizers' antinomian argument to pieces by showing how true believers have the Holy Spirit who helps them kill sin and live fruitful, holy lives. Lives. 